Zenobia Dollard. Yes, Miss Dollard. You sound frightened. What's the matter, my dear? Nothing. But it's so dark in here. Has Mario forgotten to make a light? I'm sorry. Mario! Bring a light, please. I do hope you like me and be happy here, Miss Kingston. The car wasn't there to meet you, but I really didn't expect you until morning. Have you had your dinner? Such as it was. The bus only stopped long enough for a bite. Well, then you must have some. Mario, bring Miss Kingsley a glass of milk. Oh, no, please don't bother. It's no trouble at all. And welcome to The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett. And tonight, I have a new victim. Guest. Guest. It's a guest. He's a guest on the show. He's not a victim. I do not intend to do anything mean to him. Uh, Even though I think that we're going to end up disagreeing this evening. Mm -hmm. Tonight, joining me for the first time on the podcast is someone that I've been meaning to have on the show for a very long time. This is author Mark Clark. How are you, Mark? I am good. Well, when I say author, I'm uh, always impressed by people who manage to get books published because I know I just, I don't have the, I don't have whatever that bone is in your head that allows you to actually complete a book and follow through to that length. And so I'm always stunned at what you've accomplished because I have several of your books, uh, almost all of them. There's only one of them actually that I don't own a copy of. Um, That's kind of weird now that I think of it. Slacker, what are you missing? Uh, I am missing the Star Wars FAQ book because I'm no. just not that much of a Star Wars fan. Well, you can pay. Yeah, that's forgivable. But I do have both of your Star Trek FAQ books, which I find are eminently flippable through because there's all these tidbits of information that just pop into <laughs> pop into focus occasionally and then send me down odd little trails that... Uh, I guess those books are kind of built that way. Yeah, they're designed to sort of, uh, you know, be perfect bathroom reading, you know, or whatever. You know, whenever you've got a, a few minutes here or there and don't necessarily, don't necessarily have to sit down and read the thing cover to cover. Well, uh, how did you end up being the person tapped to do both the Star Wars and Star Trek FAQ books? Well, that's an inter- that's kind of interesting. They, they uh, contacted me, or a, a friend of a friend contacted me. I had been, I had done my two previous books, the horror movie books for McFarland, and a friend of mine um, was working on um, a different book for that series, and spoke with the editor who was in charge of putting together that FAQ line of books. At the time, they were really starting to develop it, uh, branch it out. Originally, it had been only uh, music-related books, and they were trying to branch out into film and TV topics. And they had a list of subjects they wanted covered, and my friend uh, David Hogan suggested that the editor, a guy named Robert Rodriguez, uh, contact me, and I, he sent me the list of uh, properties they were looking for people to write books about. And the one, or one of the ones on the list that, that grabbed my eye immediately was Star Trek, because I always liked Star Trek, and there was obviously a built-in audience for that book. 
so I said I would be willing to do that to do that one, but um, I didn't think it could be done on a single book. So I suggested that they do uh, two volumes on that one, and they agreed to that. And uh, so I was trucking right along with. Uh, I think at that I think at that point I was working on the second Star Trek volume, and uh, they were trying to get somebody to do a Star Wars book, and they actually had a different author attached for a while, but that person bailed out, and I just kind of went to my editor and said, uh, you know. I could do that one too. <laughs> and she was like, Oh, well that would be great. So, uh, I went up doing the star Wars book as well. Uh, you weren't doing it at the same time. Were you? No, there, I did have, I did deliver the, uh, the star, the second star Trek book. And then I had, uh, there was a break of about six months, uh, between delivering that book and, and signing a contract on the star Wars book. Cause there were some, uh, I, I asked for some more money on that one. I asked for some more time on that one. And uh, some other things that we, we had to negotiate. So I had, there was about a six-month break between those two books, and then I got started in, in earnest on the Star Wars book. And in the meantime, I wrote a novel that apparently nobody wants to publish. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Really? Yeah, really. Uh, so, uh, I mean, is that the first novel you've completed or just the first one you've, you've uh, sent out and tried to get published? It's, the, it's actually the first one I've completed. It, it's... Um, it's kind of neat, you know. It's a it's a uh, kind of a young adult um, science fiction novel. I I tried to. I, it's got, uh, my, you know, my thinking on doing this book was when I was in middle school. What what did I like to read about, and can I find a way to smash everything I used to like to read about into one book? So it's got like Nazis and robots and dinosaurs <laughs> and all kinds of thing in this all smashed into this one book it's a it's uh, it's an interesting uh i think it's an interesting book but um it hasn't gotten any any traction yet with agents and i don't have a lot of context to uh you know outside of the you know in the fiction world i've got a lot of context in nonfiction, but uh so it's it's been a little bit of uh of me trying to figure out what to do with the thing now that it's done so we'll see Hopefully somebody. Well, I'll just I'll I'll wish you good luck with that one. Regardless, I mean that's uh, I I I know fiction is a much more difficult field than uh, nonfiction because there's a there's a glut of fiction and it always seems to be a glut of fiction and therefore it's uh, it's it's it seems way more difficult to get fiction published no matter no matter what your track record in nonfiction. Sadly, right? You know and. It was just one of those things. I thought, well, why should I continue? You know, why should I? Uh, well, I have a break from writing this nonfiction that makes me very little money. I might as well take advantage of this break to write some fiction, which I will make no money for at all. So. <laughs> you learned them, huh? Oh my goodness. Well, I mean, you know, eventually, if it, if you get nowhere with the the fiction book, I mean, there is, you know, there are alternative ways of uh, publishing and at least getting the book out there and possibly garnering garnering an an audience might get you uh, the chance to do some do a follow up or do something like that for an actual publisher. Who knows? Yeah, it's the it's intended to be the beginning of a of a series or at least a, at least a trilogy, mm-hmm. but. Um, I know I've thought about that. We'll see what happens. I'm gonna I'm gonna I have to finish my current project I'm working on, and then probably next year I'll return to that and see if anything can happen with it, and then and then kind of take it from there. I'm not I'm not too worried about that one right now. That one's sort of on the back burner. Well, I have to say, uh, as much as I enjoy the Star Trek books, uh, it is the '60s Shockers book that you published a couple years ago that is my favorite of your of the works with your name on it. Uh, you co-wrote that one with uh, your buddy Brian Sin, 
And uh, I, I got to say, I love 60 Shockers. That's another book that's built to be something that you can flip through. And, uh, you know, you can look, you can be looking for specific things, but at the same time, it's great to just browse through and stumble across something that you might not know much about or not even know anything about. And therefore, uh, start perusing websites trying to find a copy of the film that you're <laughs> you're reading about. Uh, when uh, when did you guys decide to do uh, sixty shockers? What was the what was the impetus? At the time we decided to do that, it was just a thing where nobody had done it. There there was no book. There were tons of Brian had written has written uh, an excellent book about horror films from the 1930s, and of course there are many other books on that subject, and there were books covering other you know lots of books on the 50s science fiction movies and there were books on 80s horror movies and and other things but there really was not a book um strangely on the 1960s which struck us as being a major deficiency given what a great decade for horror movies that was i mean between the, the 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 dawning of the more modern horror style, but then the, the more classical gothic horror style still being very much in force. And you had great black and white films and great color films. And you had, you know, Karloff and uh, and Vincent Price and Cushing and Lee and all, and all the, many of the great Hammer films and a lot of, you know, Mario Bava and the, you know, things happening internationally. And it was just this amazing period that nobody seemed to have really paid much attention to or felt it was important enough to write about. And we thought, Somebody's got to do something about that, and may as well be us. Yeah, I mean, you're, you, as soon as you you, you mentioned that concept uh, before the book even came out, I thought it was a brilliant idea because yeah, there have been books written, uh, you know, kind of glancingly on say like Roger Corman's Post Cycle, and of course there have been books written on Bava and Hammer films and all that. But the kind of overview vision of a book of this type, kind of looking at the entire 10-year span and realizing just how interconnected some of these films were in the, the approach and the subject matter as well, it, it, was, it was a great idea, and I, I love what you guys did, even when I disagree with you. Well, I'm glad to hear that. You know, it, it, that's uh, always good to hear. The You're right, there, there were other books that, that took one one of those threads, you know, the the Hammer films obviously have been written about quite a bit. The Corman films, there have been books about, uh, you know, Vincent Price or, or other things. But 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 there hadn't been that overall look at things, and and a lot of things hadn't been written about much at all. Some of the lesser you know known movies or lesser celebrated movies. So it was nice to to dig those out, and actually the '40s book is going to be very similar to the 60s book in in many respects and although it's going to have some key differences uh, but it's going to be structured very similar to it it's going to have a it's going to begin with uh you know an introduction and then a a kind of a history of the decade that'll combine some actual you know history history with film history and other things that played into the to the development of the genre during that period um, obviously, during the 1940s, the the overriding thing is World War II, and we get the the ramp up to America's involvement in the war. You know, the war itself, and then various things that happen as a result of the war, with women entering. The- oh yeah, the, the the films produced the films produced during World War II are very different from the films produced just a few just a couple of years previous. Right, clearly. and and then. 
and then various uh, things that happened in, in American society and, and global society as, re- as a result of the war, and then, then the impact of, that all those changes had on people toward the end of the of the 1940s. And, all, and the way, so you have all this historical aspect, and then the way all those the way those changes and tensions affected themes and ideas uh, in and even in some cases the audience for horror films during the decade and the way those things shaped the genre uh, as the decade progressed. So it, it's the, another one of the other cool aspects of this book, and, and one way it's going to be different than the 60s book, is actually has to do with what we're covering. Uh, in, with the 60s book, we had so many movies. I mean, it was just a, a, a tremendous hundreds and hundreds of movies that were horror movies were produced in the in the 1960s and so we had to figure out how we were going to address that and what and maybe it wasn't the most elegant solution but what we decided to do is just cover everything that was released in the united states during those 10 years and then there was a short section at the end for things that were produced um produced during the 60s but didn't actually play theatrically in the united states during this during the 60s well we're their number of horror films produced in the 40s was large, but significantly lower than those produced in the 60s. So that enables us to, to do this a little bit differently. So the way we're structuring it this time is we're doing, all, or attempting to do, um, all horror movies that we can find out about, lay hands on, produced anywhere during those 10 years, whether they were released in the United States or not during those years. Um, so this has enabled me to get a chance to look at things like the the first horror film made in Spain, made the first one from Argentina, India, Czechoslovakia, the West Indies, all these places, films that most people haven't even ever heard of, much less read about. Ooh. So that's that's been a really cool and exciting element of it too, is because that was also the decade where a lot of countries outside of the United States and Britain started to started to make horror films for the first time that's well first of all i'm very excited about the the book that you're working on now focused on uh i guess thrillers from the 1940s not enough has been written about it at all and the fact that you're going that deep if you're going to go that far outside of even the uh the rather large field that i was envisioning when we first talked about the book uh a year, to, well, I guess, a couple of years ago. At this point, I, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that. Have you hit a wall trying to locate a film that you know of, but you haven't been able to actually get your hands on a copy to be able to include it in the book? Yeah, there are a few, and a couple of those I've written. I mentioned the film from the West Indies. Um, that one's called The Living Skull, uh, Tengorak. Hide Dop or something like that is how the it's the original title is. I, th- I, th- I, th- a, I think you I think you're supposed to put the uh, the emphasis on the third syllable. I have, <laughs> I have no idea. I'll take your word for that one. Um, there, there's a movie ne- from never, uh, never never take my word on pronunciations. I'm telling you, yeah. I'm always wrong. Yeah, there's a movie from Finland that I um, uh, would love to see that I, I can't pronounce its title either, but haven't been able to track that down. So there's some there's some very oddball things and and, and a couple other uh, there are a couple other things, um, uh, but but those are the ones that immediately come to mind because I've been looking for those now for a couple of years since I since I discovered they existed. 
the way we're having to what we are doing with the 40s book is uh, since we're we're not limiting scope based on the, the the being released in the United States we are li- we are forced to limit scope in some other ways so what we're trying to do is really keep the book focused on horror movies or things that at least make some attempt to be scary um, so okay because when you get in, especially into the later part of the decade, one of the really interesting things that happens in the 1940s is that after the war, there's, there are a ton of movies about ghosts. There are tons of movies about the afterlife, things like, you know, uh, A Matter of Life and Death, the Powell and Pressburger movie. Um, there are tons of movies where obviously people are just trying to come to grips with what they did during the war or what happened during the war or, and that sort of thing. And uh, some of those movies qualify for our book, but a lot of them don't. Because obviously, in my mind, you know, A Matter of Life and Death, for instance, fantastic movie, not a horror film. Um, yeah. or, and there are lots of uh, – the other thing that was very big during the, during the decade were horror comedies. And we do – and there were a lot of really good ones. It was a, probably the best decade for horror comedies between things like uh, – Evan Costello meet Frankenstein, of course, and The Ghost Breakers, and I Married a Witch, and a number of other wonderful movies yep. that were made during that period. But there were also a number of these films that were sort of kind of pretend, you know, like they act like they're, or build themselves as being uh, horror comedies, when there's really no horror content or very minimal horror content in them. So those were, are ruling out. I'm just trying to wade through. So there will be things like, um, if we were taking a different approach could be included and are sometimes included you know we're not gonna so we're not gonna be doing things like the canterville ghost although i love that movie the ghost of mrs muir obviously isn't really what we're looking for it's more of a romance than anything else yeah portrait of jenny not so much mm-hmm. and those are all good movies but they're just not what you know and they will probably get they're going to get mentioned at some point in the in our discussion about trends in the decade but they're not films that we're going to cover because they're not horror films. Well, you know, talking about that, I mean, when you get into things like The Ghost of Mrs. Muir, you know, and these films kind of grew out of a, a form of literature, literature, you know, the kind of the gothic romance, which was the idea you know, right. of combining often, you know, the spooky settings with, uh, you know, a young, a young woman in a, in a, in a distant place with, uh, that she's, uh, you know, she's a stranger to. And those kind of things, they, they, you know, the movies certainly blend uh, some of those things into other types of tales as well. Uh, and I can see wanting to exclude those because when you make it on the page, it's very easy to uh, combine those things and to have it be something that really kind of uh, feels natural. But on screen, in general, you pretty much have to go in one direction or the other and so Ghost of Mrs. Muir, yeah, there's a supernatural element to it, of course, but it really leans heaviest on the romance end of things, you know, meaning meaning that that's fine. And, you know, it's fine and dandy, and it's a great film, but I can see excluding it if what you're trying to do is concentrate on, you know, movies that are, are built around the idea of trying to get under your skin or to kind of creep you out or to give you those kind of, you know, nasty chills that a, that a horror movie is supposed to. Yeah, and my, and my sort of my go-to rule on that is that if if a film has uh, films of a supernatural element, a ghost or or whatever, uh, if it's malevolent, it's in. So like, 
alias Nick Beale is in where Ray Milan plays Satan and is trying to gather souls for hell and screw up people's lives and that sort of thing. Whereas plus, plus it's a great film. Plus it's a great movie, right. But It's a Wonderful Life with Clarence trying to save people's souls is not in. No. Because while that's also a great movie, it does not belong in our book, in my opinion. I agree. And, and I think that making that decision of what the movie was actually attempting to accomplish is probably a very smart move. So The other thing I think that's uh, – there, there are going to be some things in the book, uh, on the other hand, that don't always get categorized as horror, but I think are. One of the, one of the arguments I'm trying to make um, with this book – is that the horror the horror films of the 1940s have gotten a bad rap over the years, and and I think one of the reasons for that is that agreed agreed somebody uh, wrote at some point in the past probably uh, probably Bill Everson or somebody wrote that you know the horror genre basically died in 1946 and. That was the end of that. And the, the, the horror films got worse and worse throughout the decade, and then, they, and, then the, and then the whole genre died in 1946 and didn't wake up again until sometime in the late 50s. And that doesn't really fit with the actual facts or the actual um, output if you look at the movies. Uh, the, the nature of horror films evolved over that period of time, but there were still horror films made after 1946, and they were... But some of the, some of the films we don't necessarily think of today as being horror films, but they were, you know, there's this shift yeah. during the war years where studios begin making uh, glossier uh, films, glossier thriller horror type pictures that often have a female lead and that are often based on works of literature or a popular novel or something and are just a, more, a bit more respectable than the typical, and they're, and aimed, and they're made for grown-ups. They're not made for, for kids, like a lot of the other horror movies were. So you get things like The Spiral Staircase, for instance, which some, some people refer to as a film noir, or some people call it a psychological thriller or whatever. To me, it's clearly a horror film. It's almost, I, uh, in a weird way, it's almost a shallow film. Oh, I've always thought of it, at least I've thought of it for decades now as kind of, a proto giallo. I mean, the black glove killer motif certainly starts there. Mm-hmm. And there are others. There's the secret behind the door. The Fritz Lang movie is very much, to my way of thinking, a horror film, and it's part of this whole trend of like movies begin going all the way back in the '40s, at least, to Gaslight, where you have women uh, who are in peril, who are threatened by yeah. some man in their life. I mean, I think a lot of those the kind of things probably grow or out of the fear of women being left behind when men or you know men went off the, men went off to war and other factors like that that were that were out there in the in the miasma but you get there are a lot of those types of films during the 40s too and many of those don't get categorized as horror films because they're a bit tonier they're a bit uh, more literary um, and that sort of thing but but they were definitely designed to you know raise the hair on the back of your neck and, and they were definitely designed to give audiences a chill and they did yeah yeah well i've often wondered if uh, one of the reasons why uh, the horror films of the 40s get such uh, a bad kind of hairy eyeball from so many people 
is that we're talking in general about the opinions of, of film historians, film freaks, film geeks, who uh, always have a tendency to um, kind of pull back and try to get as as good a distance from, you know, kind of, kind of take the, you know, 5,000 foot view of certain things. And of course, the biggest thing to grow out of the late 40s was the film noir shift, you know, moving into darker and darker subject matters in crime films. And so I think that the love of that genre, and, and believe me, I'm one of the people who loves that genre, but I think the, the kind of uh, informed nastiness and the informed adult nature of a lot of uh, the film noir movies, the movies that got termed film noir as, the, as that cycle went along, I think that having that start at the end of the 40s has a tendency to kind of uh, give a harsher view to film historians about the often lighter and less, uh, shall we say, red-blooded version of things that were being done in the 40s, horror, horror movies. Um, in other words, um, although those types of movies, you know, film noir and horror movies are far from being the same thing, but in some cases they do aim for some of the same types of thrills, especially when you get into certain types of uh, psychological horror movies. Well, I think I think they are. I mean, they're I think they're closer together than people want to admit. Yeah, As a matter yeah. of fact, that reminds me of of something that years and years ago. Now, I was at a Fanex convention in Baltimore, and uh, somebody asked Gary Spela. Uh, the guy from uh, Midnight Marquee, and of course, who put on the Fanex conventions, what, ask him what film, like, what is film noir? And I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting to see how Gary answers this question. And Gary's answer was film noir is horror films for grownups, <laughs> which I thought was, yeah, which I thought yeah. was a great answer. <laughs> and it is a great answer because that is really kind of what they are. I mean, it's that. Post-World War II, you know, the scales have fallen from our eyes as far as, you know, film entertainment is concerned, and a harsher outlook on the realities of life are, you know, being presented. Uh, you know, still well within, of course, the, the Hays Code restrictions, but still, yeah, that's, that, that's definitely true. You look at something like Out of the Past, which is possibly the quintessential film noir, and that is... No matter whose perspective you take in that movie, and you can take one of three perspectives, it's a horror movie. Yeah, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, you know, we're not going to be covering out of the past in, in our book, but I, but I can see, I can understand that perspective. There are a lot of, uh, simply because you, if you, you know, while I say that, yeah, I mean, they're horror films for grownups. I think they are separate enough that we don't want to muddy it the waters too much but but there are certainly films that are typically thought of as noir films that contain a lot of horror elements and we talked about the spiral staircase another one we cover in the book uh, at least briefly is uh uh the red house yeah uh, the uh, ever g robinson movie which is it's like that's what is that it's kind of a lot of different things really and there are a lot of movies, there are several movies like that that you can categorize any number of different ways but yeah, I mean, the, the and there are noir films I think that cross over that you know ones that involve you know homicidal uh, killers and that sort of thing that that are that are where they get really edgy that I think it becomes virtually indistinguishable from horror. And there are mystery films and other things, of course, old dark house mysteries and that and that sort of thing, which I love too. And many of those, uh, not all of those, but many of those also will cover in the book because they have sort of enough. It's almost like a checklist, you know. You check enough boxes, and 
and the preponderance of the evidence says you're horrorish enough that you you belong in this book. You're hor- yeah. And and other things, if you don't, then you, then you don't. Well, uh, just off the top, I, I almost forgot to ask: uh, Have you come up with a title for this uh, 1940s overview book yet? We had a title that McFarland, our publisher, does not like and will not be using. Mm-hmm. So I have a couple of ideas. Uh, Brian is working with me on this book again. I think I meant, did I mention that? The, hi, Brian. No, no, you, you, you completely left Brian out of this entire cool. conversation. I've just found that highly amusing the entire time. Uh, but um, uh, so I, I have a couple of ideas I need to run by Brian and we'll, and then run it by the publisher and, and, and see what they think. So it's uh, right now I'm just calling it, we're both just calling it the forties book. So Brian has written about half of the entries the reason I'm not mentioning Brian very much is because he's actually writing another book. He kind of finished his part of this one and has moved on because he is way more prolific than I am. Of course, he also <laughs> his kids are out of the house and, and all that sort of thing. I've I've got more going on right now than he does. Also, he lives the life of Riley and only works four days a week and is getting ready to retire in a couple of years. Yeah, but. yeah. Brian Sin, Mister Vacation. Yeah, so it's 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 a rough life, uh, skiing <laughs> the world over and whatever. But um, I, I hope I hope he listens to this so hard. <laughs> I really, really want him to hear this. <laughs> uh, no, but Brian's awesome, and and uh, he also uh, edits everything that I do. So you know, uh, he makes everything I, I write sound better than it actually is, probably. But uh, a good editor is a great thing to find. Yeah. So so, uh, but um, but yeah, we we don't have a uh, a final title yet. I will let you know. When when we do have one, cool, cool. I I just hope that they what we come up with one that that, that McFarland will actually use, or else we'll get we'll get stuck with a, with a McFarland title, and the book will be called something like Horror Films of the 1940s, a comprehensive uh, filmography, <laughs> and blah 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 blah. Yes, exactly. It'll sound as if it's some dry. Some dry university rejected uh, yeah. PhD. Uh, oh God, that that yeah yeah, that's 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 not a good idea. Yeah, you're gonna have to sixty shockers and forty. Oh, well, you have to come up with something. Uh, maybe, yeah. maybe not something that uh, you know will will be alliterative, but at least something you know that's gonna be better than your standard McFarland title. That's yeah. oh, I got to get that out of my head. Okay, hold on, folks. Uh, uh, the reason I have you here tonight is to discuss a film uh, that um, I only recently finally got to see. Uh, it's certainly in the 1940s, and it's something that uh, you, of course, have already written about for this forthcoming 1940s book. It is The Spider-Woman Strikes Back, uh, which is a very difficult movie to to see. And even if you do see it, you're going to see it in a very muddy, crappy-looking print because Universal seems to uh, think very little of it, as far as I can tell. But... Uh, Spider Woman Strikes Back from 1946. Uh, let's take a let's take a brief break here. Uh, get a get something you know. Get a little glass of water or something, Mark. Let's take a quick break and then come back and then let's uh, let's talk about the Spider Woman Strikes Back. If we must, and we must. That's why we're here. <laughs> Not just to pimp your books, buddy. White Zombie, a new novelization of the classic horror movie from award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan. Available now in print and all ebook formats. Find it on Amazon, Smashwords, Drive-Thru Fiction, and other quality outlets. Also available in a special edition, 
including the complete movie script. Grab White Zombie before it grabs you. Details at sdsullivan.com. The following is a message from the American Podcast Council. We need your help. Podcastophobia strikes four out of five Americans every day, and chances are that someone you love or could love given time is currently suffering from this devastating affliction. But it doesn't have to be that way. For zero dollars a day, you can help. Please, make some time today to let just one person know about a favorite podcast of yours. It can be this one, but it doesn't have to be. But it probably should be, but seriously, no pressure. And show them where to find it and how to download, play, and subscribe to it. And tell us what you recommended. Use the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y pod. Thank you for speaking out. And thank you for listening. My lovely Drachenina, I must rob you with a little of your beauty. Grow strong, my friend, and bring me a new blossom. Spider-Woman Strikes Back from 1946, released on March the 22nd of that year, directed by Arthur Lubin, uh, stars Gail Sondergaard and Brenda Joyce, uh, also Kirby Grant, but to be honest, it is the two female leads that are the real reason to come here. Well, there's also Rondo Hatton. He didn't make nearly enough movies to uh, my way of looking at things, and in most films he made, of course, he was uncredited. Um... Tell me, just I know this is an odd place to start for a film like this, but Rondo Hatton does have a significant role in this movie. Um, what would be your favorite of Rondo Hatton's uh, performances, and/or the favorite, your favorite of his films that he actually has a significant role in? Well, I think if you want to think of it as being a run, I mean, it's it's weird to think of something as a Rondo Hatton film since there were like no films that really, except for The Brute Man, which is terrible in which he was really the central character in the film. <laughs> um, but I think uh, House of Horrors, is a, I'm blanking, I think I've got the name right. <laughs> I should know that. No, that, that that's correct. Yeah, yeah. House of Horrors, the universal. The, the, one, the one with Martin Koslick as the sculptor is is a very satisfying uh, film. It's, hor- it's obviously a horror film. He has a major role in it. And that, that would be probably my number one. But then 1A would be The Pearl of Death, the uh, Sherlock Holmes entry with uh, Rondo in it, in which he's... Uh, also, is he's not in it as much. He's not as important uh, a character, I guess, in that film. But he's very effective and and really scary every time he's on screen. That's that's really the film that gave him the rest of his career after that, and and made him somebody that could be put on a marquee or on a on, at least on a on a poster and have people be interested in seeing. You know, the creeper was it was the way that he was used in that particular film. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, yeah, his, depending on how you look at it, his screen time was limited, but it was a very effective amount of screen time. It was, it was quality over quantity and it was, it was very well done. Um, I, I, when I was looking over his uh, filmography, I was really kind of surprised to know that there was a movie that he made in 45 called The Royal Mounted Rides Again where he plays a character named Bull Andrews. And it's like, I have never heard of this movie. One of the stranger threads of my film geekiness is that I'm, 
kind of semi-obsessed with uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police films, which is really <laughs> a strange thing. I know being neither Canadian nor you know someone who regularly rides horses, I don't know. Uh, but there's a fascination I have with Royal uh, with with those types of movies, and he plays a character named Bull Andrews in 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 one of them, and it's just like, wow, how have I how have I not seen this? It, it's a it's a serial. But I'm also kind of obsessed with, you know, even the dreariest of serials. So I, I've got to one day find this thing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just so bizarre. Well, good luck with that. You know, did you, were you a big uh, Dudley Do-Right fan as a child? You know, I never, ever saw a Dudley Do-Right until I was much older. It's just not something that got... Um, I, t- I talk about this with people sometimes where it's... See, I, I grew up w- with uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee being the uh, place with the, the, where I got my television from as a youngster. And, you know, therefore, just like everybody else, I'm kind of... Whatever got shown as reruns, whatever got bought by the you know various syndication packages for the the three television stations out of Chattanooga, that's what I grew up on. Those are the reruns. Those are the things that I saw, and there are these humongous gaps that you know that you know when I was a child just did not play in that area. And those are th- you know there are a lot of I. I I had to go visit family in other areas of the of, of different states to see, you know, reruns of the '60s Batman television series, and and I never saw an Irwin Allen television series in my life until I was an adult. It's just really weird, I know, but it's wow. just just the way it is. Yeah, I was lucky. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. We were we had uh, at that time uh, WDRB 41, which is now a Fox affiliate, but then was an independent station which was the greatest because in addition to the three networks, we had this independent station, which programmed tons and tons of old movies and like whatever they could get a hold of, which was, which was great for me. Cause I just watch, grew up watching all these old movies and, and you know, the, every Sunday they, they would do this thing where they'd run, they'd open up with an Abbott and Costello movie. And then there'd be a Godzilla movie or some Toho movie. And then two like, you know, regular grown up type movies, Betty Davis or Western or something. And uh, it was just, yeah, and then and, and after school every day they would run Lost in Space or you know Ultraman or all this great stuff. It was it was uh, it was pretty cool. Well, count yourself lucky because a lot of us didn't have that fun time. Oh, and of course, now, uh, and on Friday night, Friday nights, <laughs> uh, double feature usually uh, with the Fearmonger. So much of my much of my misspent youth was uh, has has come back in the in in this you know knowledge of old movies that I just absorbed like a sponge when I was probably too young to be spending that much time in front of a TV set. Well, I think part of uh, what fueled my obsession for a lot of movies was the fact that I could read about more movies than I could actually see. So when uh, it became possible in the 90s to, to start you know, going and buying bootleg tapes and trying to, you know, scouring the television uh, listings. The TV guide was, of course, something you went through with a highlighter, trying to find those obscure things, trying to track them down. And it, you know, this this you know, the Spider Woman Strikes Back would be exactly the kind of movie that would have been something that I would have circled, you know, circled or highlighted and gone, okay, when do I have to get up? And at what time of the middle of the night do I have to get up to see this damn thing? And um, yeah, I checked actually um, for because because I'm I have my own little geeky obsessions and. and uh, Spider Woman Strikes Back did, in fact, play uh, on Fright Night at least a, a time or two uh, in the '70s. So it's possible 
that I saw at that time. I, of course, watched it again recently for the book, and I've seen it a few times over the years. Yeah. It's actually not that hard to see. It's been sitting out there on YouTube for at least a couple of years now because I'm pretty sure Universal has forgotten they ever even made the thing and isn't worried about it. They may have, but that print on YouTube, okay, the print on YouTube is watchable, but it's right at the edge of don't bother <laughs> to watch it as far as the visual well, quality is concerned because it is so stinking muddy that there are and and there are scenes where you're having to strain and like crank up the brightness to figure out what the hell is going well, on. Well, that that is true, but for me the whole film was pretty much on the edge of why bother to watch it. So, uh, and now we're getting into why you're wrong. So, <laughs> let's talk about why Mark <laughs> Clark is wrong. I don't care I don't care that you're a published author, Mark. We're about to have it out. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about this for a few minutes. One, um, I think we can agree that the movie is under an hour long. Yes, 59 minutes, so just <laughs> under an hour. Actually, actually I, I would even debate the 59-minute official <laughs> length because I can't find a version that actually clocks in at 59 minutes. Uh, it, it clocks in under 58 every time I find a way to view the stupid thing. Uh, and some of that, I think, is uh, even the print on YouTube. There's obviously some loss of film at the real changes, uh, and that may account for some of that. But it also points to a problem. Before we get into a discussion of the plot, it also part uh, points to a problem that is just very obvious watching this movie, which is there are great big huge chunks of this movie that got carved out of it before the film got released. Uh, somebody somewhere at Universal wanted this thing to be under an hour long, and I'm assuming that's because they wanted it to be, you know, a, a double feature fit with something else. But there are times when the narrative just leaps, and, and, and it becomes evident that things are not there that should be there. People are referencing uh, arguments that we should know something about, but we didn't see these arguments, and they're they're referencing conversations that were had and that we probably ought to know something about and we never heard them because they're not in the movie and then my favorite moment when you realize oh they've just carved a big chunk out of this is when suddenly uh all the cards are on the table but uh we didn't have the confrontation scene where the where the uh the poor ingenue gets captured by the dastardly bad person and set in a chair to await Gil Sondergaard to saunter in and to fill her in on why these things are happening. It's really weird to watch a movie that has so obviously been just chopped to ribbons before it ever got in front of the public. It definitely has some uh, some issues that are, that are not the movie's fault, that are not, you know, Arthur Lubin's fault or who have anybody else involved uh, fault. Well, I guess it's the editors were involved fault. Although there are plenty of other universal films in this period that are barely an hour or, or as, you know, I got six, you know, 59, 60, 61, 62 minutes. A lot of the Holmes entries are, you know, 65, 69, something like that. So I doubt that there's really that much missing. It's not like this started out as a 90-minute movie and lost a third. I mean, it's probably at some point it may have been a 65-minute movie or a 69-minute movie, and they and they've whatever they yeah. it, it feels yeah. it, it feels like about. I mean, this is just a guess, of course, but it does feel like somewhere between five to ten minutes got carved out of this because there are actors listed in the credits who are not in the movie. Yeah, it, it's. The, the the way the film was assembled is pretty haphazard, but for me, you know, the way the way I look, I mean, for one thing, okay, here's the deal, is I'm writing this whole book trying to prop up, you know, lift this idea that 
40s horror films were better than people uh, want to make them out to be. And frankly, the Spider-Woman Strikes Back does not help my argument. I mean, it's... <laughs> uh, okay, now, now I will not argue with you on that point. It, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is... Uh, uh, for all the nice things I'm going to say about the film, I could list you a dozen films that I would put up as, you know, better better examples to make your argument very clear. So, yes, yes, I agree with you on that, sir. The, you know, I, and I think people who, who talk about the horror films declining in the 40s do are, are talking specifically about about the the the, the universal cycle, the, the films being made at universal and particularly just the sort of horror monster Film. They don't. They're not talking about things like the secret behind the door and that sort of stuff. They're talking specifically about these kind of movies, yeah, yeah. and the quality of those films does, in fact, decline. But there, but there were other things happening. We haven't even mentioned Val Luton yet. I can't believe we've gotten this deep in a conversation about 1940s horror films, and his name hasn't come up. Yeah. But there are a lot of great things happening in RKO. There were other things going on, and with and and at this point, you know, Karloff had come over to work with with Val Luton at RKO and. And was busy, you know, making a series of three basically masterpieces over oh, I'm there. More than willing, so, I'm more than willing to stipulate without even, without the slightest bit of argument, that the best horror films produced in the 1940s were produced by Val Luton as a producer. Those are, I mean, you know, there are some that are better than others, but every one of them is brilliant. Yeah, the Luton films are tremendous. Dead of Night from Ealing is. Excellent. I mean, there are some. Yes. I mean, it, it, the that's kind of one of my uh, one of the things that bugs me is I think that the horror films in the in the decade get painted with the same brush, like as you know, as if they all went the way of Universal, when in fact they didn't. And it, and I would argue that most of the best horror films of the 1940s were not made at Universal. Some of them were, especially earlier in the decades, things like The Wolfman and other things. Um, Son of Dracula. You know, there, there were some excellent Universal horrors earlier in the earlier in the in the 1940s, Certainly. but it's not like the 1930s where Universal really dominates, and almost all the best horror films are Universal films. That's not the case in the 40s. And and one of the things is one of the things that's happening at Universal is that as the decade goes along, uh, they start to sort of lose interest in these movies. They stop assigning. Uh, the top directors, uh, the top you know, the, you know, name stars, and and um, they just they become these just product that they're cranking out without paying a whole lot of attention to them or caring much about them. And I think that the Spider Woman Strikes Back is a is a prime example of the kind of movie that just kind of shrugged off. It's not it, if this movie had if it'd been uh, four years earlier, uh, this uh, this movie probably wouldn't have even have been made because they were putting out better stuff back then. I, I think by the time you get to the 45, 46, Universal was actually doing a better job like with the Sherlock Holmes films. Oh, well, the Sherlock Holmes films, those were a unit under themselves. Uh, by uh, Lord, I've forgotten the fellow's name. Roy, um, darn it, the fellow who... Uh, Roy directed Neal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, so he kind of had a, a large amount of control over how those films went. And then, you know, as things went along, so did so did the two stars. And so there was a, a kind of quality control on those films that I think sets them apart in a, in a large in a large way that, uh, and a pro honestly, if you look at those movies, all for the better. But, um, yeah, I think you're right to a degree that, you know, say Arthur Lubin, the guy who directed this, I mean, 
Yeah, he made Black Friday, the weakest Karloff Lugosi film Universal ever produced, so that's not exactly a, a big ringing endorsement. And honestly, it seems that the director of this it film... It is the world's best Stanley Ridges movie, though. <laughs> well, Ridges makes that movie. He's fantastic. Uh, he, he really is very good in that. But Lubin, you know, really spent most of his time in the 40s making things... I mean, yeah, okay, he made the 43 Phantom of the Opera, which I like, but, you know, it's not... It's not better than the silent version, but he made a lot of Abbott and Costello films. And yes. That's a, I mean, he made some great ones. Don't get me wrong. Buck Privates in the Navy. Come on. I mean, these are good films, but at the same time, it's a very different animal when you're talking about trying to generate chills. And I'm not saying that he was devoid of talent or devoid of the ability. And he does, I think, in this movie, I mean, there, there, it's almost impossible to not be able to generate some, some uh, creepiness when you're filming, you know, specific things. And this movie is chock full of kind of old dark house, creepy set pieces that, you know, may or may not work at different times. But clearly this guy was much more uh, comfortable with uh, things like Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. I mean, this is, you know, he, he did, you know, Francis the Talking Mule movies after this. It's a question of what are you looking at as uh, the kind of thing that this guy is really suited to do and um this ain't it yeah yeah this is he's not the perfect fit for this that is not to say that i think that uh every choice he makes in the movie is a bad one but the guy who you know made buck privates is is not the guy that i want uh trying to shepherd what was hoping to be or what was originally envisioned to be the start of a series of chillers with this character at its center. And perhaps we should talk a little bit about that because clearly this character played by Gail Sondergaard in this, uh, quote unquote, the, the titular spider woman is, uh, a character that, uh, she sort of played. It's not the same character, but it's the character she played in one of those great Basil Rathbone, Sherlock Holmes films, uh, the spider woman, of course, but it's, and, and of course that is a, that's a great little Sherlock Holmes film. Although I've always felt that that ending, the ending of the spider woman has always struck me as one of the weakest of the Basil Rathbone, Sherlock Holmes films endings. Uh, what do really? you think about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the reason I think it's weak is that, uh, Holmes is strapped into this this weird, you know, contraption, and we're waiting for him to accidentally, you know, we're waiting for him to, quote-unquote, be shot. And it's like, well, we know he's not going to get shot. That's just not going to happen. And also the contraption itself is like, it looks, I mean, it looks like it was built for this to happen. And it just, it's always struck me as an incredibly, you know, mechanical, you know, plotting-wise, you know, I'm sorry, it's also a mechanical thing on screen. So I'm not I'm not trying to be too clever here, but it is one of those things where I look at it and I go, I I just don't. I, I, there was a there had to have been a better way to to set that entire set piece in motion, rather than it being as weird as it is. And uh, although I do kind of like the the ending where the Spider Woman and her henchmen get caught and she you know smiles, gives up. She's not going to do something stupid to get herself killed. And I wonder, and of course I don't think that either of us have any inside knowledge on this because I certainly couldn't find any. I, I, I don't know if that's because at the time Universal was thinking about having this character come back in a future film, although they may have because 
the the character that she plays in that Holmes film was described as the female Moriarty, and so having a kind of uh, you know alternate to uh, the Moriarty character in that uh, Sherlock Holmes series of films might have been something they were looking for. They were looking for that would have been actually pretty darn cool if she you know if she had repeated in that series. Yeah, I, I'm I can't give you factual you know records or anything to to back that up but i can only assume based on the way the character is handled in the spider woman that they were envisioning gail sondergaard returning as a recurring adversary for holmes and i and i think the character and she uh, and we would have been better served if that's what they had uh, done with her but the character was was such a, a breakout uh, phenomenon that they decided why not go ahead and give her her own uh, movie, potentially maybe even her own series outside of Holmes, and, and which I think was his case of the studio just getting a little greedy. Yeah, yeah. Some of the later, I mean, after the Spider, the Spider Woman is really the beginning of this really hot streak for the Sherlock Holmes films, where you get the really good, really really horror tinged Sherlock Holmes movies, mm-hmm. The Scarlet Claw and um, House of Fear and uh, Pearl of Death and. And Great those, like, just, I mean, at that point, yeah. those movies were better than most of the horror films that Universal was releasing. They're scarier, they're, they're more atmospheric, they're, they're just, they're really satisfying little movies. The Spider-Woman isn't, isn't quite as good as the ones that immediately followed it, but it's a very yeah. solid movie. And, and I think that they were, that Universal was just trying to sort of, sort of, uh, you know, uh, split a pair of you know tens you know and, and see if they could come up with uh, <laughs> double their money here <laughs> but yeah I mean, clearly it was a gamble that's a good way to put but, it but you yeah. know I, but i think that they would have been better served if if because uh, because after that streak ends you know the last few holmes films are uh, the series does start to run out of gas and it would have been nice if if uh, the spider woman had been available and i guess she still was theoretically to, to come back and and return as an adversary, especially because they wind up bumping off Moriarty. Um, it would have been nice to have her come back and return to, to that series where she was really effective. And when we say the Spider-Woman, we're talking about Gail Sondergaard, who's really a phenomenal performer and is, to me, I mean, the Spider-Woman Strikes Back, to me, is a is a, is a fairly unimpressive hangdog kind of picture. But... Gail Sondergaard makes it worth seeing. She is excellent in this, and Brenda Joyce, uh, former Jane, is uh, is excellent in it as well. The two the yeah. two of them are very well matched, and make the Spider Woman Strikes Back a movie worth looking at if you're a Universal fan. Um, even though the movie itself is no great shakes, in my opinion. Well, I'm not going to ever claim that uh, this film is some undiscovered classic. But I do, I do like it a good deal more than you. When I finally got to see it, uh, you know, first of all, my expectations are dialed down. I was extremely excited by the idea of someone feeding human blood to a plant. <laughs> I always love that. Give me, I mean, there, there, there have to be at least a few hundred movies with that plot, I wish. So <laughs> the idea 
behind the that is well, uh, that is a cool aspect though I'll give you that oh, one. Oh, I, I absolutely I absolutely love it. So I, I like the film. I think it's good, and I think that one of the reasons that I kind of give it a, a a bit more leeway than you might is that simple fact that even on first viewing, it is so obvious how much of this movie is missing. And the thing is, yeah, the those Sherlock Holmes films, and let's let's be clear, most of the uh, horror films produced by Universal in the forties. Those things were geared to be, they were written to be, you know, 75 minutes or less. That was how they were scripted. And so what you have here is a movie that clearly was not scripted to be under an hour and got chopped down to it. And even on first viewing, it's obvious. I mean, they're, they're, they seem to, I, I think they may have done as good a job with the editing as they could trying to paper over what they were ripping out of it. But it's, I mean, it's impossible to not notice it, you know, on first view. And so I kind of give the movie a little bit of leeway because it's clear we're seeing a butchered version of this thing. Now, well, having said I, that. Uh, well, uh, let me just, if I may, sure. um, I, I, I understand what you're saying. And I'm not, I don't want to be without sympathy for this movie who obviously had some things done to it that were, like I said, outside of Arthur Lubin's control or anybody else uh, among the, you know, other than the editor and, and maybe somebody, some suit at Universal had to do with this, but but I still have to deal with the film as it is. Of you course, know, and of course. There, and there are obvious chunks missing from other movies that turned out okay, like at Universal even, like Bride of Frankenstein has is obviously truncated. Yeah. Um, the Black Cat has been mauled, and both of those movies are masterpieces. So, well, the Black Cat got mauled, but also they did reshoots to, to to kind of firm some of that stuff up. My favorite, you know, my favorite Universal classic, in my opinion, to talk about when you want to discuss, my God, did they butcher this movie? Is Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, where. You know, it, it doesn't take much digging or reading to learn that originally Lugosi's Frankenstein, uh, Frankenstein's monster, was supposed to talk and be blind. And that is excised completely from the film, making it, um, I mean, as soon as, you, as soon as you learn that piece of information, it really, I don't know about you, but I, the, the pit of my stomach just dropped out and I, I felt... Like I felt somewhat betrayed by that decision. I still love the movie. I still really enjoy it. But at the same time, knowing that we were deprived of something that would have probably been even more interesting, is is a gut check. It's it's really harsh. Well, that's that's a movie that I think, despite uh, despite all the chops made to that film, it turns out pretty well. But Lugosi's performance in in particular. Uh, takes a hit. I mean, his his performance in that movie just seems awful if you don't know what has been done to it. Yeah. Now, what we will never know is whether it would be better or worse if we actually could hear his delivery of the lines, because it's conceivable, and what I, you know, at least I've heard some reports, that the studio felt like the sound of Lugosi's voice coming out of the monster was just hilarious and and ruined the film. It worked at the end of the previous movie for a line, but I don't know. Yeah. you know, I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't know if that. Oh well, that's the thing. We'll never. We'll, we'll know. never that's know. The, but that's the sad. I, that's the sad. But, but yeah, I do. I do agree that as it stands, Lugosi's performance is is pretty much obliterated in that film by the editing. But the movie itself overall doesn't fare nearly as badly. I mean, the, the opening of that film is phenomenal. Oh yeah, and and it 
it's really good basically until they get to you know Vizaria or wherever it is and the monster shows up <laughs> and then it, and then it gets a little it goes a little off the rails for a while but but recovers and has a good ending and and uh, and all that sort of thing it's overall it's a, it's that's another movie we talk about obviously at, at at length in the book a very important film it's the I, first I tell, I tell you i have a question for you uh, I, and this is something i've talked about for years is is it is uh, has anyone ever tried to do a visualized map of of universal horrors europe <laughs> i would be willing to bet that somebody has but and if and if and if someone listening to this has done so please post it in the comments because i'd love to see <laughs> yes it. I want to, if that exists, I want to know how far Viseria is from Frankenstein and how, how far both, both places are from the coast of England. I just need to know these things. I'm and, really and, curious. And if, if somebody has done that, I have a project for you, which is I want to see a crossover map with the Universal <laughs> Europe and Hammer Europe. So how far is Karlstadt from Viseria? <laughs> How far is Karstadt from London? That's always been one of the things I always wanted to know. Oh, man. Okay, okay. Uh, hold on. We're off track. Hold on. No, Mario. She'll not die like the others. I'll be careful not take too much. You remember your bargain, Mario. I'll remember mine. Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about the plot of this film. And I, I usually would want to go through uh, the uh, plot description given to us by uh, Tom Weaver and his co-writers in the Universal Horrors book. And I'm going to do a little bit of that because I think it's a good jumping off point to talk about the things in the movie that work and the things that don't work. Um, so, uh, oh, first of all, yeah, I, you mentioned briefly before we before we do that. Uh, Brenda Joyce is fantastic in this movie, and uh, I I have to be honest and say that I only really knew her as the replacement Jane in the uh, the Tarzan series, and so and I I thought she was you know just fine in those movies. But you know the what's required of a, of an actor to play you know. Jane, you know, the second, often third banana to Tarzan in those movies, uh, I wasn't expecting her to be able to hold her own against someone that I have so much respect for, like Gail Sondergaard, and she's pretty darn good. Oh, absolutely, yeah. She's she's a real um, unexpected uh, find, sort of, in that movie, because you're right. The I like her in the Tarzan films. It's, you know, she has more to do in some than others, but you're right, she's, a lot, in a lot of them, she's just sort of window dressing. And then and there's some of them where Jane's the character doesn't appear at all. Um, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, um, I mean, so it's like the, if they could do Tarzan films without the character at all, that tells you the character isn't necessarily essential <laughs> to the proceedings. Um, well, what it, well, it makes me want to go back uh, and watch the two and rewatch the two um, Inner Sanctum movies that she was in, Strange Confession and uh, Pillow of Death. Uh, Pillow of Death being uh, generally considered one of the weirder of the Inner Sanctum movies, I just I, I, I didn't concentrate on her performances in those movies, and now I want to go back and rewatch those and see, you know, what you know what was I what was I not paying attention to when I was looking at Lon Chaney Jr. and trying to figure out why every woman in all of those films wants to go to bed with him. So, 
Well, I did those films too for this book. I mean, even even though some of those, um, it's like there's a section we have for like the the full uh, full on horror movies, and then there's one in the back that is like horror ish right. movies. And, and so most of the Inner Sanctum films wind up in that section. I mean, they're covered because they've always been covered as part of the genre, and some of them do have some horror elements in them. Uh, Pill of Death is one of the ones that has that's more horror horrorish than uh, others. Uh, she's not particularly she doesn't particularly stand out in those films either. She's not bad, but she's just sort of there. Um, there's really nothing uh, that I have seen her in, honestly, where she's as good as she is in of all things, The Spider Woman Strikes Back. And then shortly after this, she she gave up acting. So it's not like there's a whole lot of other stuff out there. Uh, she just got fed up and quit. You know, so she wasn't getting roles uh, that she was happy with. And I think she, if I remember correctly, she got married and uh, hung it up, if, if I'm remembering correctly. Possibly. Which, yeah. which is a shame, really. Uh, just out of curiosity, another film of hers that I've seen from the, uh, the 40s, which uh, you may or may not have included in your book. Uh, it's a comedy mystery, primarily, called Whispering Ghosts from 1942. Whispering Ghosts. Um, uh, Mil- Milton Berle. Okay, that is one. If I okay, I have to. That actually may have been one. Okay, the, we talked about the. Um, already talked earlier about the fact that some of the horror comedies are have more horror in them than others, and yeah, don't uh, you know, and and that. So I think that was one that we looked at, and. Um, uh, and didn't actually wind up writing about the, uh, and I think that that one may have been one that Brian looked at because it's not, I'm not remembering that one vividly. So that may have been one that, that he was assigned and said, nope, moving along. So, <laughs> well, it has John Carradine in it as well and Willie Best. So I'm curious enough to check it out eventually. So, yeah, uh, the, uh, I'm, I'm checking and I just quickly checked here. Yeah, she did, uh, Brenda Joyce did retire in 1949 after. Tarzan's Magic Fountain, which is uh, actually one of the few Tarzan movies where she has uh, some interesting things to do. She may um, have had she may have had some interesting things to do, which because they were enticing her to actually do one more Tarzan film. Yeah, that's possible. But then after that, she hung it up. So that and that was only three years after uh, uh, after this uh, after the Spider Woman Strikes Back. Okay, okay. Well, uh, let's uh, let's start through this pretty darn detailed. Uh, plot synopsis of uh, the Spider Woman Strikes Back. Actually, actually, I'm going to derail you one more time. No, go ahead, go ahead. Because the more time I, we talk about something else, is the less time I have to talk about the Spider Woman Strikes Back. Uh, you're a nasty, nasty man. Uh, so the other cool thing this is just me geeking out with you for a minute and letting your friends know what a what a total nerd I, I truly am and your <laughs> listeners. But okay. uh, one of the cool things that that uh, writing this book about 40s horror films enabled me to do was finally to see the final movie covered in Universal Horrors, the the the, the, the Weaver, Bernice Burnus book. That, like, this book, by the way, is the reason I, I started writing books about horror movies. I was the, so... Oh, the, the Universal Horrors film, really? Yeah, the, the Universal Horrors book. I checked it out of the library when I was just an ordinary, you know, uh, citizen uh, that was not in the... Well, I mean, I liked horror movies, but I was not, like, uber fan, writer guy. <laughs> and I was so uh, wowed by it. I checked it out about three times and finally bought it. And then I thought, you know, I want to write a book like that. And that's when I started working on the book that eventually became Smirk, Sneer, and Scream, my book about acting in horror films. 
And and one of the first uh, contacts I made actually was I went to uh, to the uh, to a fanax convention and uh, wound up uh, meeting Weaver and going out to dinner with with Tom and and uh, Brian Sen and Len Naren and I forget who all else. We all went for ice cream at like two o'clock in the morning. So, but <laughs> but, uh, but I had been trying to see. But one of my missions in life had been to see every single film covered in this book. And, and so this writing this 40s book enabled me to finally scratch the last title off the list from the table of contents. And, of course, I've seen a number of other films that he doesn't write about in here that are universal things from the 30s and 40s that are horror-ish but didn't quite make the cut. But the, the, the last one I, that I had to see um, was Destiny, which is another movie it's very hard to see, which was the movie that was expanded from a segment that was cut out of the anthology film flesh and fantasy and it wound up really not being that great a movie although it is interesting to see it along with that flesh and fantasy because you can see the movie that that film could have been and probably should have been um but it was just great to finally scratch that one off my list it was like you know goal achieved moment for me hey i understand i understand plus kingsley plus plus synopsis that is plus everybody wants a plot synopsis well, not everybody, but you're going to have to suffer through one, so deal with it, buddy. <laughs> oh, you want my, I, 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 how about I read my plot synopsis for my 40s book? Because we're trying to keep no, plot synopsis yours, very yours, short. Your, yours is dripping with nastiness. I'm not going to get to that quite yet. <laughs> we are trying to keep the synopses as short as possible, so ours is only a well, few sentences. We can do this. Hang on. Gene Kingsley, played by Brenda Joyce, arrives in the small Nevada cattle farming community of Domingo to act as companion to wealthy Zenobia Dollard, played by Gail Sondergaard. Zenobia has lost her vision after a visit to South America. Jean is driven out to the Dollard estate by local rancher Hal Wintley, played by Kirby Grant, who is a former beau and who can't speak highly enough of the philanthropic Zenobia. At the candlelit Dollard home, Jean meets Zenobia's manservant Mario, played by Rondo Hatton. By the way, let's uh, let's before we go too far, I want I want to point out that uh, Kirby Grant is of course best known for being in uh, low budget westerns, and he does just fine in this film. But the movie's not about him, so it, it doesn't really matter. But I do think it's interesting and odd that the, our main character Jean ends up in this very small town just by chance. Be, and, it, and it is the place where this man who very obviously proposed to her back in the city that they both live in, which is never spelled out. I'm guessing it was supposed to be L.A. maybe. But um, they never uh, they, they never pull too hard on the string that it is really odd that she ended up in that same small town when it appears that the reason that they didn't get married is that he wanted to move back to this small town and she did not. So... Um, I, I wonder, it, was it, uh, we know this film went through many different script drafts, and there's a part of me that wonders if one string that may have been something that they decided to tamp down on or just do away with completely is maybe Gene being a little more mercenary about making the choice to take this job in this town because she would possibly be able to rekindle a romance with this fellow. That's not how it plays in the movie, of course. Uh, but then again, we also don't get a chance to see what the uh, excised argument that they have later on that we hear about but don't ever see was about. So I, I am kind of curious as to whether or not um, the, the odd coincidence of them knowing each other and ending up in this you know small town where there's less than 2,000 people, 
how that might have played out if we got to see, you know, the whole story. It's possible that the original idea was for his presence in that that character's presence in the town to account for her winding up there in a more believable way. Uh, yeah. So that's very that's very possible, and it's the kind of thing that that maybe something. My guess is something like that probably isn't deleted footage from the film so much as it is something that just got lost in subsequent screenplay drafts where they just lost sight of that or quit caring about it and you know it's like well it's due next week so let's just you know it just uh, gets let's yeah just get and, and nobody remembered or cared about um the issue of why is she there what is you know, sort of like what is my motivation kind of kind of stuff they weren't really concerned with that they were more worried about the mechanics of you know how do we get this uh this person in to the into the clutches of this woman and her henchman who who's out to uh well I won't get there I don't want I won't spoil I don't want spoil the plot we'll until we get further along with the synopsis well we have the introduction of uh, Mario played by Rondo Hatton obviously Rondo Hatton deformed with acromegalia but at the same time um He's a, he's playing a deaf mute, and it is my opinion that of course they decided to make this character a deaf mute, uh, so that they wouldn't have to have Rondo Hatton delivering lines of dialogue. Now, Which I, was uh, wise. That was yeah. a, that was a good choice. Um, but I did think it interesting that they have him communicating through sign language. But unfortunately, I don't know enough about sign language to know if that's any you know realistic version of sign language or just you know the idea of getting it across on screen well enough to uh, make the character work. I, I have a nephew that communicates in sign language and through a, uh, through his, um, iPad. And, uh, that is not ASL, <laughs> whatever he's doing. It's not ASL. I don't know ASL, but I can, I know it when I see it and that ain't it. Well, that's what I was wondering is, uh, when, when was, uh, American sign language actually codified? Was it, was it before the 1940s? That I don't know. Uh, I did not study up on ASL in preparation for this interview, but I'm sure that I'm sure the interwebs would have that answer for you. Well, well, we'll let this go, sir. <laughs> it may very well. You're right. Uh, in a well-executed shot, the blind woman enters the dimly lit parlor from the shadows. Zenobia's kindliness puts Jean at ease. She has Mario bring the tired young woman a glass of warm milk. Jean drinks it and retires for the evening. Now, um, once again, there are a number of well-executed shots in this movie, even with the crappy, muddied print that you can—that is only the only way available to see this. Uh, but the um, the lab is nicely shot. Oh, the lab is wonderful. But the uh, there are a number of times I think the the stairwell is very well lit as well. But I think that may be because uh, these are you know these are sets built to to be shot on, and therefore the the angles chosen are the ones that are the ones most obviously chosen to uh, light things in a certain way. But I do think it's a smart choice to make this, uh, to make this house candlelit at all times, because that just helps to amp up the creepy factor. If you can, you know, get the creepy factor rolling at all at any point in time. (laughs) Uh, The idea of, of course, as soon as the the first time that she's uh, presented with a glass of milk to drink before bedtime, it doesn't really ping any bells in anybody's heads. It certainly did with me. But the second time, you suddenly realize, ah, yeah, okay, I get it. This is this is how she's uh, she's knocking this woman out. 
every night. For whatever reason, she wants her quiet, she wants her asleep, so that whatever's going on at night, she's unaware of. And uh, it doesn't take long for Jean to discover that something foul is afoot. A letter arrives at the house for Betty Saunders, that's Zenobia's former companion, who purportedly left her employer on short notice to get married. When Jean sends her predecessor a letter, it is returned by the post office. Betty's current whereabouts are a mystery. Jean's health takes a sudden turn for the worse. She is plagued by headaches and a loss of appetite and awakens each morning drawn of strength. The cause of Jean's problems soon become apparent. Zenobia has been drugging her milk and then, after Jean retires for the night, withdrawing a considerable amount of blood from her veins. In her basement laboratory, Zenobia nurses huge carnivorous plants brought in from South America. They resemble oversized Venus flytraps with wavy tendrils and hungry blossoms. By feeding the specimens a diet of live spiders and human blood, mostly human blood, Zenobia is able to distill from the plants an elusive poison that she has been using to eliminate the cattle belonging to the local ranchers. I just want to say my pot, our pot synopsis is way better than that one. Sorry. <laughs> I will tell Tom that next year at Monster Bash. <laughs> he will be informed of your snottiness, sir. He'll, he'll probably say Michael Burnus wrote it. <laughs> you may be right. <laughs> now, let's, let's get a couple of things straight. Of course, Zenobia is faking her blindness. To, uh, you know, it's just another one of those things that allows her to put her uh, intended victim slash victims. I mean, Jean uh, is at least the third woman that she's done this to. And so what we have here is, uh, man, I, I, I got to say, I really love the look of these plants. <laughs> I like I like the whole lab. You, you mentioned how good the lab looks. And you're right. And the plants are a big part of that. I think they do a great job with whatever they did to make these things look like... Uh, uh, you know, living, breathing things that uh, are a little too grabby. Yeah, the the, the lab, the plants, uh, that the that whole aspect of it is is pretty well executed. Uh, you know, and then you've got uh, you've got you know Rondo walking around looking creepy, and that adds some atmosphere to it. Um, and you've got these two good performances, and that's that's pretty much where I run out of good things to say about this about this movie, but. Uh, well, something else that I like about this movie is that we have Rondo becoming more and more obvious in his um, infatuation, shall we, shall we say, for Brenda Joyce's character, Jean, uh, to the point where he's, you know, standing over her bed and looking at her at night, and it's and it's really hard to, you know, it's really hard to miss <laughs> if you're the viewer of the film. It's really hard to miss that he's, uh, you know, he's on the verge of uh, of getting kind of rapey. He's uh, he's getting a little obsessive with her for some for some reason. You know what it reminds me of actually is uh, just because it's you know this being a Universal movie is it's very much what happens um, with Karis uh, time and again in the Mummy movies is he's under the yeah the yeah. Th- the employee of the or whatever the the control of the of the high priest and. Um, but and inevitably becomes fascinated with the young woman who's the reincarnation of whoever, whoever, and uh, <laughs> and then and ultimately it, it turns against. I mean, it's very much the same pattern, except that it's, it's been grafted onto this kooky old botanist and her and her uh, her unfortunately uh, uh, afflicted uh, manservant instead of the priest and the mummy. 
all of these things are true. I I, I gotta say that I love I love a good mad scientist story, and this film does have tinges of mad science. Uh, it's really weird though because generally your mad scientist his goals are different than <laughs> Zenobia's goals. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, as as I as I write in the book, I mean, it's the, the her her plot is like something out of a Hopalong Cassidy movie, not not exactly. I mean, I, horror, I though, can understand so. wanting to reclaim the land. Well, let's let, let's go through here because after a child becomes ill and dies from drinking milk taken from the poisoned livestock, panic-stricken farmers, fearing financial ruin, begin to desert Domingo. Hal calls in Commissioner Moore of the U.S. Department of Agriculture to investigate the area for poison weeds. Which I kept, I kept wanting to make. I wanted somebody to crack jokes. I wanted a marijuana joke in there so bad, and nobody makes it because of the damned haze, uh, the haze restrictions. Ugh. Anyway, local weed, <laughs> local weed. Uh, becoming increasingly suspicious of Zenobia and Mario, Jean observes the blind woman alone in the dining room and catches sight of her feeding a spider. Uh, an ensnared moth. Realizing Jean knows the truth about her feigned blindness, Zenobia plans to add the young woman to her list of victims. Introducing Jean to her lethal specimens, uh, yeah, this would be the the giant narrative leap that tells us that we're missing the scene where, you know, there, there needs to be a scene where just before the all cards are on the table and I'm no longer, and I'm peeling back the mask to show you the real person uh, where that, that that's the scene that really hurts the most that's missing. Um, but introducing Jean to her lethal specimens, Zenobia brags of her scheme to reclaim the land once belonging to the dollared family of farmers, quote, the poison from <laughs> Drakakima's, I'm mispronouncing this, this plant's name. I apologize. <laughs> I apologize. I apologize to all plant life. The poison from Draconema's beautiful flowers leave no trace. Feed it, Jean. Let it drink, she says, handing the woman a vial of blood. With your own strength, you've made it strong. You're going to die, Jean, like the others. But it won't be really dying because you'll live on in this beautiful plant. Now, first that of seemed, all... That seems reasonable, you know. Yeah, well, first of all... Gail Sondergaard is awesome in this scene. This is the moment. This is the beautiful moment where you're going, yes, the rare female mad scientist, and we have an actress who can pull it off. It's wonderful. It's glorious. I, I want to back the film up and listen to her give that little speech every time. It's it's wonderful. There are so few mad scientists in cinema, and she has a doozy of a scene right here. It's a great well, and it's even well, you know, it's even more impressive when you keep in mind what she's working with here. I mean, it's like Lagosi dealing with the Ed Wood dialogue about you know your, your the <laughs> jungle hell thing and Bride I, of the I Monster. I would say it's I would say it's closer to what Lagosi was doing in the 1940s himself, the poverty hero horror stuff. To be honest, well, well, but 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 in any case, you know, she's not working with uh, with. Uh, outstanding material here, but she completely sells it. I mean, she She's is great. Uh, yeah. she is just a joy to watch in this, uh, and uh, she it is pretty much like we talked about the Spider Woman earlier. is a it's a very similar performance. You, they clearly wanted her to bring that same persona to this, and she just has that same kind of uh, uh, cr- uh, 
I don't want to have an iciness where she just kind of radiates this this um, kind of disdain. Although she has uh, in the Spider Woman, the the great thing about that character is that, is that you get the sense that everything is just a game to her. Yeah. And yeah. and she doesn't. That's a little different. You know, that's the major difference in her character here. The way she, her line readings and everything are are very similar, and the 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 what she tries to project in terms of the that sense of menace is 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 the same but she actually is uh isn't like it's not a game to her she's out for she's she's out for revenge you know she's 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 got something she wants to get across uh, and accomplish here in, in a way that's not the same in in the earlier film and that gives her even a bit more of an edge even in this film to a certain extent and and, and certainly makes that scene work it wouldn't have worked if it was just like she was trying to play it the way she did in the previous film where it was just so this was something she was toying with to amuse herself. She's, she's actually invested in this and as cockamamie as it is, she makes you believe that Zenobia really does want this. Well, and that's one of the great things about her performance in this movie is that it really is multi-layered. She is so gracious and smooth and calming and, and, it's very easy to see why the locals think of her as this incredible philanthropist and just a wonderful person. Not just because she, you know, she you know, donates sweaters to the poorer families in winter and things like that, but the way uh, Sondergaard plays that character to put everyone at ease around her uh, in the first part of the film, she's so smooth in that. And then when you know you have this turn when you know the mask. It doesn't just slip. The mask gets pulled completely off, and we have this mad woman, you know, talking about harnessing poison from a plant to get away with running people off of what she clearly considers to be her land. It's it's amazing because we see this, um, we see way more faces of this character than you would expect to see, and she's really she's good at every part of it. She's just fantastic in the role. She's smooth even when, in a different way. I mean, her performance is smooth even even when the mask yes. comes off. I mean, she's Sondergaard, who, by the way, was the first actress ever to win a Best Supporting Actress Oscar, uh, and it was quite an established, uh, an accomplished, uh, you know, performer. By the time this, even by the time this this part rolled around, is just uh, smooth as silk, and and and. In everything that she does in this film, even when she's, you know, blowing her, her stack here at the end and revealing her plans and all that stuff, which is what the script requires her to do, but she is incapable of doing it in a way that doesn't seem elegant and polished to a degree. It's like she, there's, it's stylish and she's, it's not that she's not, you know, there's fire in it, there's conviction to it, but she also just has this grace that very few people, even the great, or actors or great actors you know you know may, maybe claude rains had some of that quality um george george zuko i think had some of that quality yeah you know he did but, he did uh i would say i would say uh lionel atwell to a degree well yeah but he he had a tendency to to really uh you know gnaw the scenery a bit i mean i love atwell but he, there was always uh, he was always barely you know, <laughs> under control, and and there's more of a there's more of a, a sleekness, uh, slickness 
to slick. Yeah, more yeah, of a that Limelight Will's characters are slick to, yeah, to her uh, her performances in, and, and and that's certainly the case here. That that um, and I think it's a nice contrast. Uh, one of the reasons the film, one of the reasons the film is worth watching, as I mentioned, is this is this sort of clash between Gail Sondergaard and Brenda Joyce, and Gail's very, um, uh, as we're talking about, very slick and 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 refined, and and Brenda has this much more earthy, bare knuckles almost kind of uh, kind of approach that comes across, you know, very it's, it's sort of a more proletariat way of approaching the role. <laughs> that, that Sondergaard has so there's this there's like this clash there 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 is a clash of 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 age I mean I don't know I don't know exactly what the age difference in the actresses are but in terms of demeanor Brenda Joyce certainly seems a lot younger and um, they seem to be from different backgrounds and but they both have they're, they're both strong women with uh, with uh, strong wills and it's very interesting to me that that we had this horror film from 1946. That has these two strong female characters that are put in opposition to each other, and the film is built around those two characters. I mean, Rondo's around to be uh, a threat, uh, but he's sort of a walking prop, and most of the other characters are just kind of window dressing. They don't play a major role in the events of the film. It's really these two women, True. and that's pretty unusual. Well, I, I got to thinking about this a, a few days ago when kind of looking at the film from a, from a distance, and you mentioned that the the plot to kill the cattle to get the to get the, to get the land is something out of a B western to a large degree. But at the same time, there's or, a or a Scooby Doo episode maybe 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 sort of. But at the same time, there's another way to look at look at it, which is. Uh, you know, I keep thinking of the mad scientist aspect of it, and the idea that you have this small village set, off, you know, set off in a rustic area, and you know, less than a couple of thousand people there, and she wants to run some of them off, and she has e- evil ways. I just kept seeing all those farmers as you know, middle European uh, <laughs> villagers. And that uh, you know the mad scientist was trying to get rid of so that nobody would pry into what the what what experiments he was doing. Oh, I think that's definitely you know we mentioned earlier that you know the the similarity with the mummy films, and I think that the, the sort of angry villagers element and the remote village thing is another thing that they're trying to sort of touch on without being too obvious about it. And so I think that's I think that's fair. It's just it's just that the I wish she was like trying to combine the human beings and plants to create some weird monster or something that sounded really freaky and mad scientisty instead of like I'm gonna poison the cattle you know it just sounds like what <laughs> that's what this is about so yeah it just... yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree I agree the the hybrid idea sounds good to me too <laughs> I would like to see that film <laughs> so I think you know, uh, I'm not. I'm not going to give away. This is my next novel, right there. <laughs> your next novel, human human plant hybrids, coming to you soon from Mark Clark. Uh, no, but no, I don't, I don't want to to give away the the full ending because this is a, a difficult film to see. I mean, uh, not well. It isn't if you you know hunt it down on YouTube, but it is easy easy to see if you have YouTube access. But I'm not going to give away the ending. Let's just say it's it's v- fairly fiery and surprisingly <laughs> explosive, to be honest. And uh, um, the uh, I, I found the ending uh, of of our of our two uh, dastardly uh, characters 
uh, kind of interesting in a way and sort of satisfying, although uh, the print, the, this muddy print that is the only way we can see this thing really kind of blurs the distinction between certain things at times as it's, it's a little too it's a little too white uh, a print there's some there's some white out moments in those images that really frustrate me um, which brings me to one of the points where uh, I think you and I will sharply disagree which is I want a damn blu-ray of this movie so that I can finally see it clearly oh I don't dis- you know to me it's ridiculous that there are any universal horror films that are unavailable at least on dvd yeah preferably in uh, or streaming or something i mean everything i mean all kinds of things ridiculous things are coming out on like skate town usa is coming out on (laughs) blu-ray yes i saw that announcement oh man yeah it's like seriously and we don't have you know you know or you know, I would like to see the 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 Paula the Ape Woman movies. Uh, I would too, man. I yeah. mean, let's give us the three of those and the Spider Woman. It can be the Universal Horror Chicks, you know, collection. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the you un- and I would the be under, one of the underseen. You, you and I would be one of about ten people that would buy it, but but it'd be you know, to me, it's just absurd that. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the Universal continues to reissue the same dozen movies over well, and over Universal again. Fin- and when Universal started those. doing the uh, when Universal started doing those uh, burn on demand films, uh, you know the yep. uh, uh, the Mad Ghoul yep. and things like that, I thought, oh well, man, that means that they're just they're just going to start they're going to put them all out. And there's still these several. Yep. There's still these handful of movies that, and this is one of them where no man, you don't have a legal option. You don't have a good, yep. clean, crisp version of this available. There, it just isn't there. Which is why, which is why it. I don't mind supporting my local bootlegger on occasion because if the studio's not willing to put it out, you know, and I want to see it, you know, I'll I'll do what I got to do. I'll happily supplant a bootleg copy or watching yeah. YouTube or whatever with an official copy once it becomes available. You know, I did a series. I did a two-part series for Monsters in the Vault um, of articles back in the day. Uh, this is pre-Blu-ray about all the Universal horror films that had had not been released on videotape or DVD to that point, and sort of like, what are the odds these things are ever going to be released? And yeah. which is a fun project to do too. And this is one of the ones that. I thought had a halfway decent chance of someday making it out, maybe as a you know as part of a double feature or something or whatever. But it it seemed like you know it at least has a name performer. I mean, not, not that Gail Sondergaard is exactly you know gonna rake them in these days, but but more so than you know. Uh, and he, well, it also has Rondo Hatton, and there's a there's a certain cachet for something with a film that has such a large role for for Rondo. Well, that's Hatton that's that's true too. Yeah, and so it seemed like one that that was a fairly decent bet, you know, a, a better bet than some things that have made it out since then, like like Horror Island, which I like a lot. Yeah, but doesn't have anybody in it, and doesn't isn't really a horror movie, really. I mean, it's a it's a it's a it's kind of a horror movie. Um, it's, it's a creepy it's, comedy. Yeah, it's it, but it's yeah, it's more of a horror comedy. Um, but but you know, I mean, that got out. So it's like, how did you know? How did this not? Why is this not available? It's it's just kind of baffling to me. Uh, why? Um, although I don't think it's 
anything that is going, you know, people are going to find some great revelation. But I, I think it's kind of absurd that that it's not out when so many other even lesser, lesser things are, are out. And hey, I mean, I can't I have no room to speak. I mean, I pre-ordered the Blu-ray of Billy the Kid versus Dracula. So clearly my tastes are just really strange. But come on, man! There's got to be more than more than just you and me that would be interested in having a good, pristine print of this thing out there to see. I mean, it it, it frustrates me no end. Well, those... it's it, it's it's one of those things where they if it doesn't happen soon, it's probably never going to happen because there is an audience, uh, there is a there is a cult, you know, for Universal horror films. But most of the members of that cult are your age, my age, or older. <laughs> and we're not, you know, I'm not as young as I used to be. <laughs> so, uh, give it 20 years and that there's not going to be that much of that audience isn't going to, isn't necessarily going to be, uh, you know, in the business of buying movies anymore or maybe doing much of anything else. So, they, if they need to do this, I don't, I don't understand why they just, as I said before, why they continue to give us the umpteenth variation on Frankenstein and Dracula and the Wolfman and, don't go ahead and give us, you know, the rest of what's in the vaults. And the other thing that, that drives me crazy about Universal, while I'm ranting here, is that they do <laughs> even ahead. worse by the Paramount films that they own. We talked about Alias Nick Beale earlier. That's a wonderful film. It is not available. Uh, another great film from the 40s from Paramount that's not available is a movie called Among the Living. There are, there are a number of really terrific Paramount films thriller horror uh type pictures and other pictures from this era that universal owns the rights to that they care even less about uh simply because it doesn't have you know the universal logo on it i mean i would love to see all this stuff get out or at least you know at least make it available for us to stream or something i mean i can understand maybe that they don't want to uh they don't want to go through the process of pressing, you know, discs yeah. for whatever but, reason because of the or expense. License, but license it out to somebody. Well, you know, so let's, okay. Let's now, now we now we get to the point where I actually have like one, you know, faint ray of hope on the horizon for those of us who want these rather obscure Universal horror films to come out in some form or another, and that is we have no idea what the shape and form of the full list of titles that have been licensed by Scream Factory from Universal. There have been some nice surprises already. And if somehow, for some reason, Scream Factory did a deal for more than just the obvious ones, and it would look like they kind of have, um, maybe they even got little obscurities like this? That would be nice. Although, you know, the other thing with that is, Having not issued this film or some of the other ones that we might hope for ever, basically, I don't know what kind of elements they're going to have to use when they do get out and if they would be Blu-ray worthy. I mean, maybe they would be more of a, like like what Criterion does with its Eclipse yeah. line, where it's like, well, we can put these out, but they're not really, we're not ever going to really get them to Blu-ray standard. Well, my in my opinion, I would be it would be nice if they were to do some kind of budget release of if they if if there are if there are films like that in the vault where they don't have great but they have only like pretty good prints of or pretty good elements for, then you know doing some kind of lesser you know release where you put the those you know like the 
the the ape woman films put you know put them in a package make it make it obvious you know that these are not up to blu-ray standard but put them out in some form so that you milk that extra thousand dollars from the geeks like us who desperately want these damn things absolutely yeah and, and you know and there are like i said between between the those those films the, you know those four films we just talked about there's i now i've got uh, universal horrors open in front of me and the, i'm looking at things like uh, the Man Who Reclaimed His Head, The Secret of the Chateau, yeah. and these things from the 30s. Um, and, you know, some of the later ones have come out, you know, and, and now are coming out again from from, uh, from Shot Factory. But, uh, but, but not, you know, there's just several of them that haven't. And then, like, as I said, there are those, those Paramount titles, which are, which are great. Uh, you know, if they, if they have any kind of quality at all on things like Among the Living or Alias Nick Beale or whatever, then, then it would be it would be great to see those things come out. And there, and then there are, uh, there are the crime club mysteries, which have never really been issued. You know, the, 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 yeah. the inner yeah. sanctum movies, which are for the most part, kind of hard to get through some of them. Some of them are, some of them are very some entertaining them, yeah. and some of them are not, but the crime club movies are at least as good as those. And they have never been out, uh, you know, officially at all. So, well, now you're getting into a whole area that really still, burns me up a, a good bit which are all these uh, mystery series films produced by different not just you know not universal necessarily but mostly columbia like things like uh, the crime doctor and all these different things we we're, we're get you know we're getting boston uh, blackie boston blackie we're getting you know uh the falcon and things like that in these you know multi-film sets from warner archives and things of that nature but it's like some of the more obscure ones which i think are actually some of the more interesting ones like the crime doctor are just i mean you have to just wait for them to crop up on turner classic movies if you want to see the darn things yeah you know all all praise to warner archives for doing things like the uh like I say, the Falcon sets and things of that nature, uh, as well as like Torchy Blaine, which is probably you know one of the best of that type. If you're not going to count the Thin Man movies, obviously, but there are still movies of that type, whole runs of them that just aren't available, and I don't understand it because, like I say, they do crop up in really beautiful prints on Turner Classics, and it's just so there there are elements available, but so what what is the holdup? Is it just that they don't think? That it's going to turn enough of a profit, it's it's kind of irritating to me. Uh, yeah, it's got to be. I mean, you know, you, other than let's see, we, we've we've got Holmes films, uh, we've the ones you mentioned from Warner Archives, the Saint, the Falcon, etc. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Philo Vance, those those are out. Then you know, Fox has has been kind enough to give us the Charlie Chans and the and the Motos. Um, yeah, and and Michael Shane. Uh, Michael Most Shane, of the, those one of out. those never got out, but the but the oh. uh, one of but the but uh, five of them did. Four of them in a set, and then one of them separately, and one of them got left behind somewhere. But um, but yeah, but many of these other series, like they're out, like from some of them are out, like in individual things from Alpha or you know these other places. So I don't know if it's uh, the fact that they're on Alpha makes me think it, maybe they some of these fell into public domain, so they don't have nobody's got really any. Uh, much of an investment in putting yeah, them out, yeah, you know. Be my, uh, um, but I agree; it would be. It seems like there's a, and maybe there's not. Maybe maybe we're the only people that really care about this, or there's just not enough of us who care about this. But it seems like there would be a niche there. If somebody, you could almost do your own little imprint that would just be these sort of series, because these these were like, what you know, before the days of whatever you know CSI or whatever your cop shows are. Now that people watch. 
this is what people went to. They yeah, went to see yeah. these were the these these were the pr- police procedurals. Yeah. yeah, these these were the these were the cop shows that people watched. Were these series mysteries that were very long running. Some of them were very entertaining. Uh, Boston Blackie uh, mm-hmm. at all. Those, yeah, those were great films. I love those movies. And um, and it would be wonderful if somebody could could get those out. And even if it's just on like the you know the burn on demand. The thing like what the Warner Archives has been doing, whatever, just just make them available, and it seems to me like there would be some kind of an audience for those films, and enough that you could at least sustain, you know, as uh, I mean, good lord, if, if there if you can sell however many, what is it, four different volumes of uh, Bowery Boys movies, it seems like there ought to be an <laughs> audience for things like Boston Blackie and the and the Crime Doctor. Well, let's put it. Let, let, let me let me be clear. Um, Warner Archives once again, you know, are doing a, an amazing job of putting a lot of these rather obscure things out. And to point to be pointed about it, Kirby Grant, who is the the male lead in this film, starred in a series of Royal Canadian Mounted Police films. <laughs> oh God, we're coming yeah, back I, to that. I, I'm coming back to that. Uh, <laughs> he he, st- he started a series of those playing uh, Mounty Corporal Rod McDonald. Uh, and uh, it's really all about you getting this mounted series, isn't it? <laughs> well, that's just it. Warner Brothers has put like six of those out. They've done like two volumes of three films on, you know, the burn on demand DVDs that they that they make. And of course, I have them because I'm weird. But that, that that's got to be those are super obscure, man. Those are real obscure. The, I, and, and, and of course, there's that part of me that thinks that the reason that those got out before, say, like the Crime Doctor or Boston Blackie, is because these can be tagged as kind of westerns. Mm. And so yeah. there's a there's a built in, you know, a built in audience for anything that might be a B western from that period. But is there a bigger audience for? I mean, maybe there is, but. Yeah, but is there a bigger audience for westerns than for mysteries? Because I would think I, I don't know. At this, I don't. Know. I would think at this point, I mean, it's not going to be the audience you have for horror science fiction, which is you know one of the most passionate fan bases out there. And I know western there are passionate western fans as well. But I think there are greater numbers of people that are into mysteries. I think. I mean, there seems. I would think. I yeah. mean, there seems they seem to have more currency right now. Than uh, than than westerns do. Although I love westerns and mysteries. And well, uh, as a literary uh, as a literary selling point, just uh, mystery novels have never been bigger than they have been for the past twenty years. I mean, they've never. It's a genre much like science fiction or horror that is always a big seller. And so, movies the movies generally tend to, movie genres tend to follow the popular fiction trends as you know as far as that kind of uh, sales as, as far as you know percentage of sales is concerned so I can't imagine that it wouldn't be you know just as effective to get obscure horror films out but you know who the heck knows at this point because we are talking about movies that puzzle us as to why they're unavailable so I don't know yeah well, uh, Mark, I think that's going to wrap it up because uh, I, I knew I wasn't going to be able to turn your uh, turn the tide of your opinion on this particular film. I just did want to make it public how wrong you were, and then <laughs> <laughs> and we need and we need to get off air so we can discuss our plans to open our our business uh, printing on demand DVDs of Doctor Kildare and Boston Blackie. Is the Doctor Kildare stuff available? I don't know. Oh, I mean, did I say? I mean, I meant Crime Doctor. Sorry. 
I think Dr. Oh. Kildare actually is already available from Warner. It may well be. I was actually listening to a podcast a couple of weeks ago that actually has me convinced that I might need to watch the Kildare movies one day before I die. Mm. Okay. Good luck with that. Hey, 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 John Barrymore, man, come on. <laughs> that guy's worth watching in almost anything. That's true. Mark, I want to thank you very much. Too bad much. he's not in the Spider-Woman Strikes Back. <laughs> Don't you don't you snipe at this movie again? I'm trying to be nice to you now. <laughs> hey, you, you need to have me back so we can talk about a good movie. Oh 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 god! Okay that okay that that knife that knife got into the ribs, man. That one that one got me. That one got you. Didn't get a lung, but you but you cut you cut deep. That was bad. Mark, thank you very much for being here. Anytime. All right, man. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Oh!